prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 52 and 53, the word of the Lord, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And Father, this morning as we uh, worship you, as we enter in, into uh, a time around your word, as we think of Jesus going to the cross, as we think of Jesus despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Lord, this morning we confess uh, the sin in our own hearts that has caused you grief, the, the griefs that Jesus went to the cross to pay for. Lord, help us to turn away from them, to repent and to uh, turn to you knowing that you are full of grace, you are full of mercy, that you have made a way in Christ through his suffering for us to come into your presence, through his resurrection for us to know life with you. So help us to live that life together in worship and praise for all you are and all you've done for us in your Son, our Savior, our great servant. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and we'll sing together.
Take a seat. All right, we have just a couple of announcements uh, to bring to your attention here this morning uh, as we go along in our service. Uh, after the service, we are having a new members class. So if you are newer to our church family here or if you've been around for a while, but you'd like to learn more about uh, becoming a member uh, of Weymouth or what that means or how we practice membership, we're going to be having a class after the service in the prayer room, which is if you go to the, uh, the hallway with all the classrooms, it's the one with the big square table. Uh, that's the prayer room, so you can join us in there. Uh, we'll, we'll spend about, uh, hopefully, uh, around an hour, no more, um, just discussing membership and how we practice it here at Weymouth. Uh, lunch will be provided, so uh, that's free of charge. So now we're going to get the whole church coming to that. But uh, uh, that's after the service. And then we, uh, we had this in the bulletin last week, and then we sent uh, a more detailed email out and put it on our website yesterday. But uh, at the end of October, on October 28th, that's a Saturday, uh, we are going to be putting on just what we're calling a fall festival. Uh, that's Saturday, October 28th from 1 to 4. And that is going to be a time to, to invite our church family, but also people from the community to come in and just have some fun together, celebrate fall together. We're going to have a, a trunk or treat. Uh, we're going to have a, a clinic for soccer for kids who want to come and play soccer and do some stuff there. We're going to have pumpkin carving, pumpkin decorating, hot cider, hot chocolate, popcorn, lots of those fun fall activities. So... Uh, that's going to be a good time. It's a great time to invite non-Christian friends, non-Christian family to come uh, hang out together, spend a couple hours together on a Saturday afternoon here, uh, God willing, outside if the weather's warm, but we can move things inside if we need to. So uh, that's coming up. And if you'd be interested in participating in that and specifically in the trunk or treat and coming, decorating your car, handing out candy, uh, there's a link on our website, waymouthchurch.com. You can sign up. There's also a paper form on the welcome table. You can sign up uh, there to, to bring your car. That way we know we want to make sure we have enough space in our parking lot for all the cars, uh, all the costumes, all the handing out of candy. I will be going around to each car and, and testing the candy offerings, so be sure to, uh, to bring something good, right? Um, uh, my daughter, uh, she wants us to dress up as the family from Bluey, so uh, that's how you'll be able to identify me. Uh, so that's going to be a fun time, October 28th. You can read more about that online at weymouthchurch.com. And as we go to uh, prayer this morning, uh, one exciting announcement is we are rejoicing with uh, Chris and Amanda Smith on the, the birth of their son, Patton Christopher Smith. His middle name's not actually Christopher. I just uh, took that for myself. Um, <laughs> I think his middle name's actually Alexander. Uh, but we're, we're excited about the birth of, of Patton. Uh, we're celebrating with Chris and Amanda, so uh, I think we sent out a thing to help provide the meals. Uh, there might be a few spots left for that. You can check your email for that, but this morning we want to be praying and rejoicing um, for them. We're also praying for uh, a local ministry that we support this morning, which is uh, Cups Cafe uh, north of the square in Medina. That's a ministry that uh, provides free meals to, to families in need, to youth in need over there. So we want to be praying for the team, the volunteers, the ministry going on over at Cups Cafe. And uh, as far as a global church, uh, we want to be praying for the church in Myanmar, which is number 14 on the world watch list of, of countries where it's dangerous uh, to be a Christian that face really severe persecution. Um, so we'll be praying uh, for those and other things this morning, keeping in mind others in our church who are, uh, who are struggling with health concerns, uh, who are struggling with, with different needs. So please, uh, with all that in mind, please bow and pray with me. Merciful Father, we, we come before you 
thankful that you have uh, revealed yourself to us in your word, that you have made a way for us to come into your presence through your son. And so we, we lift these cares, we lift these concerns, we lift these uh, announcements, these opportunities, these ministries up to you, Lord. As we think about how you've met us together as a church, the opportunities we have to be united in Christ, Lord, as we think about membership and, and what that means to partner together in the gospel, we thank you for the, the members that are present here, that are uh, watching online, that are present elsewhere, Lord. We thank you for the church family we have here, and we pray that, that more will be added to that number, that more will consider uh, joining as members and committing to this partnership as we seek to, um, to make disciples together, to worship together, to serve and encourage one another in Christ. Uh, we also lift up this fall festival at the end of October. We pray that it will be a, an opportunity to, to serve our community, to welcome them in, to, to provide space for them to have fun and, and build relationships, but also to, to hopefully connect with you, to see uh, a different witness of believers who, who love and serve those around them. So help that as details come together. Let your will be done there. Let it be a blessing to our community for your glory. Father, we thank you for the, for the birth of, of Patton, for the birth of Susanna a couple weeks ago. We thank you for this new life you're, you're bringing to our church. And we pray for these babies that as they grow, that you'll, uh, you'll lead them to, to yourself. You'll lead them to saving faith. You'll work through their parents to teach them your word, to point them to Christ. And that you'll work in their hearts to, to lead them uh, to faith in Christ. And as we think of, of, of babies, we think of kids, Lord, we think, we think of the kids in our community. Uh, we lift them up to you, especially those in need, those who uh, don't always know where they're going to have a, a hot meal or uh, where they're going to be able to ha have lunch for school or whatever. Lord, we thank you for a ministry like Cups Cafe. We pray that you'll use them, you'll work through their volunteers, their staff in this community to, to meet physical needs in order to point people to how you've met our ultimate spiritual need in Christ. So help us as a church to know how we can uh, help them, support them, encourage them. Help us to know, too, how to support with our prayers the church in Myanmar as they face uh, violent persecution, and uh, as they face uh, a lack of rights uh, for those who are Christians, Lord. Just strengthen them, hold them up, build them up in Christ. Help us to, um, to, to find ways to encourage them through our prayers, through, through, different, through our giving, through other ways, Lord. Help us to be engaged with your church all over the world to remember that we're part of a bigger kingdom, a greater body. Lord, and as our brothers and sisters face persecution with boldness and uh, courage, help us to learn from their example, to be willing to lay down our own lives in service of your kingdom for your glory. Hold us up, make us steady in the face of hardship and suffering and persecution. Help us to unite with other believers to celebrate the unity we have in Christ, to point one another to the mission of Christ, even if it costs us everything. Help us to do so rejoicing that in Christ we have far more than we could ever, ever lose. So we thank you for this, Lord, this joy and this mission that we celebrate together as a church. Lord, we pray for, for Vic and Connie, for, for Carol and Russ, and for others who are, who are navigating different uh, concerns with, with Carol's surgery coming up, with, with Connie's uh, treatment for cancer, Lord. We just pray for others in our church family who are facing health challenges or, or family challenges, life challenges. Lord, strengthen them. Help us to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to serve one another, to glorify you, Lord. And through all of that, through our worship of you this morning, through our time in your word, remind us of the ultimate service that has been carried out for us in Christ, your Son, who gave himself, who suffered for us, 
to bear our griefs, to bear our sorrows, to bring us to you. Lord, show us him, show us your grace more clearly. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, now I want to invite any uh, kids to come on up to the front, fifth grade and below. I'll spend a little bit more time in the, in the catechism this week, so come on up to the front. Have a seat on the stairs up here. All right. Morning, guys. Welcome. Hey, yeah, come on up front. You have a cup? Hey, hey. All right. I like your skirt. That's cool hearts. Morning, guys. How's it going? Good. All right. So we're going to keep going into our catechism. We are in question number 43, right? So we have about nine to go. We're making progress here. So I'm going to read it for us this morning. Last week, we talked about the Bible, the Word of God. This week, we've got another big word for us. In that, the question is, what are the sacraments or ordinances? That's a big word, right? Ordinances. Raise your hand if you've heard either of those words before, sacraments or ordinances. No? No? Okay, okay. Yeah, I had not heard of them until like this week when I read the catechism question. Um, right? These are big words. And to help us understand these words, I have another question. How many of you have ever been on like a team, like a soccer team or a basketball team or a baseball team or some team where you've like worn like one of those jerseys in gym class, right? Or you've seen somebody on a team. If somebody's on a team, a soccer team, a baseball team, a football team, when they play in the game, do they just go out in their regular everyday clothes? Mm-hmm. Like, no? What do they wear when they're in the game? A uniform. A uniform, right? They wear a uniform, a, a jersey. Now, do they wear the same uniform as the other team? Does everybody just wear the same one? No. They have to wear different ones, right? Why do they do that? What are the, what are the uniforms? Do? Yeah, right? The uniforms that shows who's on their team. It reminds, it identifies who's on which team, right? And so when you're on a team, yeah, you're you're on the team, you go to practices, you may not wear the uniform in practices, but when it comes time to be in the game, you wear your jersey, you wear your uniform that identifies you as part of the team. The uniform, putting that on doesn't make you part of the team. You are already on the team because you, you you got selected, you got drafted, you made it through the tryouts. But the uniform is a symbol, it's a reminder that, okay, I am on this team. I am identified with this team. This is who I am a part of. And when we talk about the sacraments and the ordinances that we have in the Bible, um, these are things, these are are public symbols, public reminders to us of of whose team we're on, of, of who we belong to, that if we have trusted by faith in Jesus, then we are on his team, we are part of his family. And so the two ordinances, the two sacraments, these public symbols and reminders that the Bible gives us are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is where if you believe in Jesus, then you go and, and you go into the water and you go down under the water, you come out of the water, and it's a symbol, it's a public reminder that, hey, I am in Christ, I am with Christ, I'm on Jesus' team. And when we get baptized, you're declaring that publicly to the world, you're identifying with Christ. Uh, communion, similarly, it's a reminder, it's a meal we share with the bread and with the cup. And when we share it, we share it publicly as a reminder to our own hearts, but as a reminder to one another uh, that we are in Christ because he died for us and he rose again. And so these ordinances, baptism and communion, they're kind of ways that we as a church, we, we put on the jersey, we remind ourselves, we remind one another, we declare to the world that we are in Christ, that we are on his team, we are part of his family. And so these things aren't uh, acts that make us part of Christ's team, we become part of his team through faith, through believing in Jesus. But when we are in Christ, when we have believed in him, then we take communion, we get baptized to publicly remind ourselves and identify with Christ that we're on his team. Does that make sense? 
Does that sound good? Not good? Very nice. I love it. All right. Well, let me pray, and then uh, we'll, you guys can head off to uh, Children's Church. Well, God, we thank you for these, these ordinances, these sacraments, these public uh, reminders and symbols that you've given us, that we uh, can be a part of your team, that if we believe in Jesus, if we trust in him, that uh, we can be part of your family. Um, we thank you that we, we don't come to you alone, but that in Christ we are united with brothers and sisters, we are united with a church family, we are part of this uh, bigger team. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate that together through worship, through baptism, through communion, through sitting under your word, through sharing your word with each other. So help us to go from here as a team, to go from here united in Christ, to share his love with other people, that more and more people might come to trust him. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, we're going to go line up behind Mrs. Martin. She's going to lead you to the children's church room. So you can just go, or you can go back to your mom, whatever they want you to do. Yep. So, all right. And then uh, the rest of us boring people will stand and we'll sing together. So.
seated. And as you're being seated, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15. As I mentioned earlier in the pastoral prayer, we are uh, in chapter 15 in which we see the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, so we're, we're in this, this, this end point, this high point in Mark's gospel of Jesus going to the cross. So this morning we'll look at chapter 15. Uh, verses 1 through 20, and then we'll look at uh, the second half, God willing, uh, for together again next Sunday. We'll, we'll look at the, the, the crucifixion and death and burial of Christ. Uh, but this morning we'll look at Mark 15, verses 1 through 20. So follow along as I read. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. And at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Amen. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious Father, humble us as we come to this account now, as we spend some time together looking to your word, looking to Christ, meditating on his, on his suffering, on his service for us. Lord, as we look at the, the hard things contained in this, passage, in this passage that Jesus endured for us, Lord, soften our hearts. Help us to see with new eyes the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ, the work of Christ. Make these things more clear, more astounding, more wonderful to us this morning, we pray. In the power of your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, one of my uh, favorite literary characters of all time, from one of my favorite books of all time, is, uh, is the character Sidney Carton. Sidney Carton, who is one of the main characters in, in Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. 
Right? And if you, haven't, if you haven't read A Tale of Two Cities in a while, it's worth uh, brushing the dust off. Don't let your uh, high school English class uh, turn you off from it forever, because it's, really, it's a really good book. It's really helpful. It's really uh, amazing. And in A Tale of Two Cities, there's this character, Sidney Carton, who uh, throughout the book, as the, the French Revolution just rages around him, Sidney Carton, he's kind of this despicable, this pitiful figure. He spends most of the book just drunk as these crazy things are happening during the French Revolution. Uh, but deep down, as you, as you read the book, you discover that the, the reason for Sidney Carton's sorrow is an unrequited love uh, for another character, for Lucy Manette, who, who's a woman in the story who is ironically uh, married to a man who looks a lot like Sidney. But she doesn't love him back, and so he's, he's caught in despair and in, in sorrow. Uh, but as the story goes along, at one point, Lucy's husband, Charles, he's arrested by the mob during the revolution. He's sentenced to death as an aristocrat. And at this point in the story, Sidney Carton, he does something remarkable. And apologies for spoiling a 200-year-old book that we all read in eighth grade English. But um, in a shocking twist at the end of the story, Sidney Carton, he breaks into the prison and he switches places with Charles. He uses their likeness to his advantage. He chooses to suffer and die in Charles's place so that Charles can go and be with Lucy and with their children. And so at the end of the story, Sidney, he is literally delivered by a cart to the guillotine. While at the same time, Charles and Lucy and their family, they're delivered by carriage to safety. And I thought of this this week because in, in Mark 15, we see that like Sidney Carton, Jesus, he's also delivered over to suffering and death. He's delivered over to a death in which he will also take the place of another, in which he too will secure deliverance for others by allowing himself to be delivered over. We see two times in this passage where we're told that, that Jesus is delivered over somewhere. He's delivered to trial and suffering. First, we see that he's delivered to stand before Pilate. And secondly, we see that he's delivered to the cross. He's delivered to be crucified. And so as we look at each of these scenes this morning, we will see the astounding truth that Jesus the King was delivered over to suffering in order to deliver sinners into his kingdom. That's the theme of these verses for us this morning, that Jesus the King was delivered over to suffering in order to deliver sinners into his kingdom. So we'll look at each of these scenes of deliverance this morning. First, Jesus is delivered over to Pilate in verses 1 through 5. Some of you might know this, some of you might not, but in game three of the 1932 World Series, it was the Yankees versus the Cubs, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, right, the greatest baseball player of all time, he went to bat against the Cubs at one point, and as he was at bat, he, he lifted his hand and he, he pointed out to center field. And then Babe Ruth went on to uh, hit a home run right out deep into the center field stands. And the legend that arose around this act is that Babe Ruth called his shot, that he called for a home run and then pointed directly where it was going to go. Now, if you've seen the classic uh, movie The Sandlot, you know all about this, right? This is a key plot point in that, you know, one of the greatest 90s sports movies of all time, right? Babe Ruth called his shot. 
And as, I, as we go through Mark 15 here, it's important to remember as Jesus is suffering what he suffers in this chapter, it's important to remember that Jesus has already called his shot here. But if we go back earlier in Mark's gospel to Mark chapters 8 through 10, we have three times where Jesus explicitly predicted that he was going to be handed over, delivered over into the hands of his enemies who are going to condemn him and kill him. And the final of these predictions in Mark 10, 33 is particularly important for us this morning. Anytime we read our Bibles, we always want to think about the biblical context. We want to be remembering, okay, what has come before in the book, in the letter, in the account that is going to help us make sense of, of what we're reading in these verses. And this morning, the, the context of Mark 10, 33 helps us make sense of what Jesus is experiencing in Mark chapter 15. Because in Mark 10, 33, Jesus, he declared to his disciples, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is what Jesus predicted in Mark 10. And by the time we get to Mark 15, we see that this prediction has already uh, begun to be fulfilled. Jesus has been arrested. He's been delivered over to the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes who put him on trial in chapter 14 and condemned him to death for blasphemy. But in order for this death sentence to be carried out, Jesus has to be handed over to the Roman authorities. He has to be delivered to the Gentiles to the non-Jewish Romans, because they alone at that time had the power to carry out a capital sentence, to carry out these kinds of executions. And so this is what we see happening at the beginning of Mark 15. Jesus is handed over to the Gentiles. He's delivered over to Pilate, who was a Roman prefect, an imperial administrator, a judge-like figure who declared judgment in these kinds of capital cases. And it seems as Jesus appears before Pilate that Pilate has already been briefed on Jesus' case because he looks at Jesus and he asks him directly, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And it's important here to see a subtle shift that takes place between Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders in chapter 14 and his trial before Pilate in chapter 15. Because when Jesus stood before the Jewish council, they accused him of blasphemy, of desecrating the temple, of desecrating the name of God by claiming divine authority for himself. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy, but a Gentile Roman like Pilate, he wouldn't care about that. He wouldn't care about that charge of blasphemy. So as they hand Jesus over to the Romans, it seems that they, they changed his charge, they changed his accusation from blasphemy to treason treason. As they, as they hand Jesus over, they take this idea of Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be God's promised king, and they reinterpret it for a Gentile audience. They, they tell Pilate that Jesus was a revolutionary figure who was claiming to be king of the Jews instead of Caesar. Because during this time, remember, that uh, the Jewish people, they were ruled by the Romans. They were ruled and oppressed by the Roman Empire and Caesar. And during this time, there was countless revolutions and, and insurrections led by a group called the Zealots. These were, were Jewish people who sought to, to rebel, to remove the Romans from Jerusalem. 
to restore the throne of David, their forefather. And this kind of treason against the Romans was a capital crime and one which often led to crucifixion for the rebel leaders. And so the Jewish leaders, they try and use this track to get Jesus executed by the Romans by presenting him to Pilate as a rebellious king, as a revolutionary figure. And so Pilate, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming this kingship? Are you trying to lead a revolution? And this question, it's deeply, deeply ironic in Mark's gospel. Because throughout this book, Mark has shown us again and again and again the authority of Jesus. Jesus has shown through his miracles, through his teaching, his kingly authority. He's revealed his his power as the promised Messiah, as the Son of God, as the King of everything. Mark has shown us this, but when Jesus is asked this question directly, are you the King of the Jews? He doesn't respond by listing his miracles or his accomplishments. He doesn't puff out his chest to try and uh, compete in authority against Pilate. He answers simply, he says, you have said so. You have said so. And then if you turn over to the book of John, to John chapter 18, we get a parallel account, a fuller account of Jesus' answer before Pilate. In John 18, 36, Jesus declares an answer to Pilate's question. He says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. See, before Pilate, he doesn't deny his kingship. He doesn't say he's not the king. But he makes it clear to Pilate that he is not a king in any way that they understand kingship. See, Jesus didn't come to start an earthly revolution against the Romans. He stopped his own followers from taking up arms against those who were arresting him. Jesus is not trying to overthrow Caesar here because he has come to bring a greater kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that is far greater than Caesar or anyone could imagine. And in Mark's gospel, Pilate, he he hears this and he presses Jesus further by pointing out how many accusations are are being made against him, asking Jesus if he has anything else to answer. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And then Jesus' silence here, along with his silence when questioned by the Jewish council in chapter 14, it continues to bring to mind the prophecy of Isaiah 53 about a servant of God who, would, uh, who was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. A servant of God who, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah promised this suffering servant who would stand silent before his accusers like a sheep before its shearers, like a lamb to the slaughter. And standing before Pilate in silence here, composed, in control, refusing to answer or defend himself, Jesus shows us that he is this suffering servant. He is this lamb that is led to the slaughter. You see, Jesus, he doesn't fight the charges against him. He doesn't strive to reveal his own authority. He declares that his kingship is actually one that the world has no category for. It is a kingship that he has come to establish by being delivered over to his enemies, by giving his life in service 
is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. See, Jesus has come to bring a kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that is ushered in through sacrifice and suffering. Not through power or conquest. This is the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring that is not of this world. And yet, how often do we seek a kingdom that is of this world? How often do we look to earthly leaders or institutions or movements that promise power or comfort or expediency instead of looking to Christ? How often do we give our ultimate allegiance to the kingdoms of politics or culture or self-expression or moral effort or material achievements? How often do we give our allegiance to these things instead of to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that is not of this world, that is not tied to the means and the mechanisms of politics or culture or individualism or achievement? See, our ultimate deliverance here, what we see, our ultimate deliverance is, does not depend on who wins the next election. Our ultimate deliverance does not depend on our own ability to perfectly keep God's law. Our ultimate hope does not rest on any earthly nations, any personal achievements or expressions, any movements or institutions that are filled with foolish, self-centered sinners like us. This is not where our deliverance comes from. So yes, as Christians, we can be engaged with politics, with culture, with society. These things have the potential to be really good. But don't ever make them your ultimate thing. Don't ever make them your ultimate kingdom, your ultimate hope, your ultimate purpose, your ultimate hope for deliverance. Because they will crush you. They will let you down. They are not our ultimate kingdom. Hear me when I say this. When you think of Jesus bringing a kingdom from, from that kingdom that is not of this world, I want to say pastorally, I want to remind you that America, as great as a country as it is, America is not the kingdom of God. We are not a new Israel. That is actually a heresy that has creeped in for hundreds of years since this country was founded. If you are in Christ, you are part of a greater kingdom that transcends the kingdoms of this world. A kingdom that unites us with believers in Myanmar and India and Chile and South Africa and Afghanistan and China. You're part of a greater kingdom, a kingdom that is not based on our achievements, that is not based on our institutions or our accomplishments. A kingdom that is based on a king who came to suffer, who came to be delivered into the hands of his enemies. Our ultimate deliverance it's found not in an earthly revolution, not in a political messiah, but in a king who came to suffer to secure his kingdom. A king who carried out his reign by becoming a sacrifice of redemption. A king who allowed himself to be delivered over to suffering in order to deliver sinners into his kingdom. And so Jesus then is, is delivered from Pilate to the cross. He's delivered over to crucifixion in verses 6 through 20. Because Jesus' his answers to Pilate's questions, they lead, they lead Pilate to, to seem to believe that Jesus is, is innocent. But rather than, than free Jesus himself, Pilate, he, he takes another route, an, an alternate route, that would allow him to, to save face politically. Mark tells us that it was a tradition every year that during the time of the Passover feast, uh, Pilate would release for the Jewish people one prisoner whom they asked for. 
This was his tradition every year. And Pilate, he seeks to use this tradition, use this opportunity to have Jesus released without actually shaking things up too much with the Jewish leaders. He, he's, he's trying to, to politically uh, maneuver a way to, to set Jesus free, but also not to upset the, the Jewish crowds, the Jewish leaders here. And so as the large crowd gathers for this tradition, Pilate, he actually takes the initiative. He actually asks them first, he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? You could tell that the Jewish leaders, they condemned Jesus out of jealousy. And so perhaps Pilate thought maybe the crowd would be more forgiving. Maybe the crowd would want Jesus to be set free. But it seems that Pilate underestimated the zeal of the crowd. He underestimated the influence of the Jewish leaders. Because Mark tells us that there was another prisoner, Barabbas, who was in prison, who was a rebel, who had committed murder during a recent insurrection, a recent rebellion against the Romans. See, Barabbas was actually one of these revolutionary leaders that the Jewish people were looking for. He was a revolutionary leader who had tried to overthrow the Romans. And so he was likely supported by the crowd. Many of them were likely there because they wanted to set him free. Mark also tells us that the chief priests, the scribes, they were stirring up the crowd. They were mingling with the crowd to have Barabbas released over Jesus. So imagine the scene. Imagine that you are one of these Jewish people inside the crowd, outside the governor's palace in Jerusalem. And there are Roman official, a representative of the empire that is oppressing you. He offers to release someone he calls the king of the Jews. But meanwhile, your leaders, your chief priests, your scribes, they're mingling with the crowd. They're encouraging people to ask for Barabbas to support him and oppose this Jesus, this king of the Jews, who your leaders have said uh, has been condemned for blasphemy. If you were in that crowd, if you were in that situation, who would you ask for in that moment? Who would you cry out for? Because what we see is that as Pilate seeks to release Jesus, the Jewish leaders, they stir up the crowd. They manipulate their opposition to the Romans. They manipulate their political messianic expectations in order to get Barabbas released over Jesus. In order to support the man who fits the mold of a political Messiah and to reject the man who is claimed to be the Son of God. And so he releases Barabbas and then things take a darker turn. When Pilate asks the crowd, then what shall I do with the man you call the King of the Jews? And in response, the crowd, they cry, crucify him. They cry, crucify him. Now, next week, we'll get more into the nature of, of what crucifixion is. But it's important here to remember that crucifixion was one of the most diabolically designed means of execution ever created. Crucifixion was created, was designed by the Romans to, to be as humiliating and painful as possible to cause maximum humiliation and suffering in its victims because they wanted to use it as a public sign, a public display of what happens when you go against the power of the Roman Empire. It was diabolical. It was excruciating. And this is the kind of death that the crowd demands for Jesus. They follow the chief priest's lead. They affirm that Jesus should die the death of a criminal, the death of a rebel. And even when Pilate asks what Jesus has done, they just continue to shout, crucify him. And so fearing the fervor of the crowd, Pilate, he releases Barabbas and he has Jesus scourged. 
before delivering him to be crucified. Now, when it says here that, that Jesus was, was scourged, scourging was, it was a public punishment, a public whipping in which the victim was, was struck with a whip that often had strips of leather attached on the end. And on those strips of leather were attached uh, often metal hooks or sharp rocks. And so when a person was scourged when they were whipped, the, the, the scourge would literally tear away pieces of flesh, revealing bone and, and tissue. And there was no maximum limit to the amount of times a person could be scourged, a person could be struck when it came to capital cases like treason. There was no ceiling. This is what Pilate calls for, for Jesus. This kind of scourging, it typically preceded a crucifixion, and many victims actually died from the scourging before they even got to the cross. That's how intense this was. But if that wasn't enough, Mark tells us that after being scourged, Jesus is taken back by, the, by a group of soldiers, led back inside the governor's house, the governor's palace. And there the soldiers, they mock and they beat him. They know his charge of treason, that he was the so-called king of the Jews, and so they put a purple cloak on him, purple being the color of royalty. They, they twist a crown of thorns onto his head. They, they mock him and salute him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And then as they mock him, they strike him, and they spit on him. And after all this, they strip him down again, put his own clothes back on him, and they lead Jesus, who has been scourged, who has been beaten, who has been mocked, they lead him out to be crucified. This is what he's enduring. This is the suffering that he's being delivered over to. And as we read this account of Jesus' suffering, of this injustice, it is rightly horrific to us. It is rightly shocking and tragic to us. But if you are one of Mark's original readers in Rome, first reading the Gospel of Mark in the first century, then when you read this account, it would have, of course, been, been shocking and tragic to you as well. But it would have been something else, too. It would have also been familiar. Because in the first century in Rome, Mark's original readers, they were themselves facing hostility and persecution from the Roman Empire. They were facing this same kind of suffering. They too were being delivered over to stand trial before Roman officials. And while they weren't accused of being the king of the Jews, they were accused of being the followers of this king, of being a threat to the empire. And so they endured the same kind of persecution and hostility, the same kind of intense suffering and even death for the sake of Christ. So imagine again being one of these early Christians in Rome, knowing that because of your faith, this kind of suffering is a risk for you. Imagine that is your situation, and then you read Mark's gospel, you hear it read, you, you hear the account of what Jesus himself endured before Pilate, the scourging of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus, the, the beating of Jesus. You hear this account where you learn that Jesus himself, who displayed his authority, his kingship throughout the book, that he was willingly delivered into this kind of unimaginable suffering. Imagine reading that as one of Mark's early readers. How, how precious would this account be to you? How important, how affirming to see this kind of solidarity in Christ, knowing that your Lord and your Savior, your King, he knows how it feels to suffer. He knows how it feels to be mocked and humiliated, to be physically torn apart even though he had done nothing wrong. Do you see how powerful 
his story is, especially for those who are going through suffering, especially for those who are facing violence and persecution. You see, when you go through suffering, when you go through hardship, it's, it's one thing to be comforted, to be counseled by somebody who, who cares, but who's never actually gone through the same kind of hardship that you've been through. It's one thing, but then it's a whole other thing when you're going through suffering to be comforted, to be counseled by someone who has gone through the same kind of suffering that you have. It's a whole other thing. I, you know, I, grew, up, I grew up in a home where, where my mom, my brother, and I were uh, forced to be caregivers uh, for my dad, who has chronic progressive MS. And so my whole life, we were always caring for him and, and helping him. And I can tell you that anytime we met other families, other people who were caregivers, other people who had uh, chronic disease in their family, often in ways that were far more painful than we experienced, there, there was an amazing uh, respect and solidarity. There was an immediate kinship, kinship and compassion that you shared with this other person, with this other family. Because you knew they knew what it was like to experience that kind of hardship. They could relate to you. They could meet you. They could bear you up in the midst of it because they knew it themselves. One of the most astounding claims of Christianity, a claim that no other religion, no other worldview, no other philosophy can match, is that the God of the universe has himself experienced ultimate suffering in the person of his son, Jesus. The claim that God himself can identify with, can comfort those who are in suffering, who are facing persecution and trial, because he himself has faced, has experienced unimaginable suffering and trial and persecution for us. See, in Christ, we don't have a God who is far off, who is distant, who is cold to us in our suffering. We have a God who meets us in our suffering, who draws near to us in our suffering in the face of hardship and persecution who draws near to us in our suffering with mercy and with compassion. A God who has drawn so near to us in our suffering that he has actually taken our ultimate suffering upon himself. Because the shocking claim of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, he took on human flesh. He entered into our weakness, entered into our fallen world to identify with us to fulfill the plan of his Father to be delivered over, to bring ultimate deliverance by being delivered over to ultimate suffering. And Jesus didn't do this, he didn't endure this horror just to be our example, just to be in solidarity with us. He endured this to be our substitute. He was delivered over to this suffering in our place, to endure the suffering that, that we deserve. In Isaiah chapter 53, the same chapter where Isaiah declares God's suffering servant will go like a lamb to the slaughter, the prophet also declares this about the suffering servant in verses 3 and 4. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. See, Isaiah, he's saying that this suffering servant is going to be oppressed and afflicted. He's going to be stricken, smitten by God. But he does so in order to bear our griefs, in order to, to carry our sorrows. 
And the ultimate grief we have is our sin. The ultimate sorrow that we carry is that we have rebelled against God, our Creator. That we have sought to replace Him in our hearts with false idols, with lesser kingdoms. That is our grief, that is our sorrow, and so we deserve to be delivered over to His judgment. We deserve to experience the scourge of being cut off from Him, of having His wrath poured out upon us. But instead of delivering us into this ultimate suffering, God has made a way in Christ for us to be delivered out of this ultimate suffering. And He did this by sending His Son to be delivered over into the hands of His enemies, to take our place in His judgment and wrath, to take on the ultimate suffering we deserve to deliver sinners into his kingdom. Christ came and he was delivered over his enemies in order to bring deliverance for his enemies. To be delivered over to suffering in order to deliver sinners into a kingdom that is not of this world. If you get to the end of A Tale of Two Cities, as Sidney Carton is being delivered by cart to the guillotine, Dickens describes for us the vision that Sidney has in his final moments. He writes, I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss, and in their struggles to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats, through long, long years to come, I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth, gradually making expiation for itself and wearing out. See, as he was delivered over to suffering and death, Sidney Carton, he has a vision of a, of a beautiful city, of a greater city to come. It was going to rise out of the ashes of this evil time he is in. He sees that suffering will ultimately give way to restoration, will give way to glory. And then as Jesus endures the trial, the pain, the injustice of his suffering, of his death, he does so not merely hoping, not merely wishing for a better city, for a better kingdom to come. He does so. He enters into suffering knowing that his suffering will actually secure, will actually deliver, will actually usher in this greater city, this greater kingdom that is not of this world. And so if you are here today, if you are here today and you feel like you have been delivered over to hardship and suffering and persecution, Know that there is a greater beauty, there is a greater brilliance to come. Know that there is a king, there is a savior who can meet you in the midst of your suffering. Who knows what it is to suffer, to be humiliated. Who himself experienced ultimate suffering for you. To bring you a deliverance far greater than that promised by any uh, lesser king, any lesser kingdom or institution or idol. Jesus the King came and suffered in order to secure a beautiful city, to secure a brilliant people for himself, in himself. So do you know this King? In the midst of your griefs and your sorrows, have you cast your hope upon the King who was delivered over to suffering? In order, to deliver, in order to deliver sinners into his kingdom. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Please pray with me.
Father, we thank you for your steadfast love, for your tender mercy. We thank you that you alone are a God who knows what it is to suffer, that you can meet us in the midst of, your, of our suffering, that you sent your Son to bear ultimate suffering for us, to bear the ultimate scourge, the ultimate death, the ultimate pain, the ultimate judgment that we deserve. So Lord, bring that to mind. Help us to remind ourselves of this, to preach this to ourselves, that Christ was delivered over to suffering, that we might be delivered into your kingdom. Would that be what holds us up as we face hardship, as we face persecution, as we are tempted by other idols, tempted by false kings, by false deliverances? Help us to cling, to cast our hope alone on Christ, who alone brings us this ultimate deliverance. Help us to look to the greater city, the greater kingdom that is being established both now in his church and one day will come in its fullness. Help us not get caught up in the systems, the mechanisms of this world, but help us to look to Christ, our greater king, who can bring life, who can bring restoration, who can bring glory out of suffering. Help us to hold to him, find life in his name, and turn from anything else that holds us back. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll finish our time by standing and sing, singing one final song together. So please stand.
Amen. Well, in light of all that, let us go from here uh, with with a word of benediction that uh, we are looking to uh, during this time where we are walking through the the crucifixion of Christ. This word from Peter at the end of uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.